This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. people guys <laughs> and they're all to see you thank you ladies and gentlemen my name is Ruth Wisher it's my very great pleasure to be chairing this afternoon's uh, uh, event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival um, there are um, as all of you readers know many different kinds of memoir but the best are always there always those where you can actually hear the author's uh, voice speaking in your head and where the anecdotes are vivid and the cast is three-dimensional and crucially for both the author and the publisher, when the volume leaves you badly wanting to know what Bonnie did next. It doesn't hurt either uh, if the writer's childhood, adolescence and early adulthood coincide with some of the most dramatic political events of the last half century and in a country which has always held a particular fascination for those of us raised on this side of the Atlantic pond. Our guest this afternoon, in her own words, didn't become a writer. She always was one. She was one from the moment she rushed to unpack the groceries, not because she wanted to be mummy's little helper, though as the eldest of a family of seven that came with the territory, but because she wanted the paper bags in which they'd been packed to use as writing paper. She became politicised at university in her native Chicago, where amongst the jobs she did to pay her way through her studies was topless dancing. <laughs> Gotta tell the truth. <laughs> we may get a demo later, who knows. It, uh, it was famously the age of sex and drugs and rock and roll. She didn't much go for the drugs. She liked the music and uh, she was quite keen on the sex. <laughs> All of which does not make for one of the more conventional CVs of an English university chancellor and deputy chair of the British Museum. I'm not sure if that tells us that she's come a long way or that Britain has. <laughs> Please welcome the playwright, author and critic, Bonnie Greer. Thank you, thank you, Ruth. And um, I, uh, I, you know, whenever I do something, I never expect anybody to be, you know, to show up. So thank you so much, all of you, for, for being here. I was just kind of shocked. Um, um, this book uh, was written on, based on my synesthesia. I'm, I'm somebody who hears music all of the time. I hear music in this room right now, the music of each of you. But it's like a common thing for me. And so I can't, it's just, it's always there. So I was trying to figure out how to do this memoir. So I thought, ah, the best thing for me to do is listen to the music of the time I was growing up, which was the best time, of course, the 60s and 70s of the best music, and then write my memory from that. So the book kind of meanders in that sort of shape. It's not a once upon a time type of thing. It goes through music. So I was thinking of, um, I don't know if you all remember or know, I know a lot of you might, the movie Superfly uh, with the great Curtis Mayfield, great, great soundtrack, which is actually better than the movie. And there is a, a song on it called Fred is Dead. And there's a moment in the movie where a kind of a drug dealer is uh, dead and this beautiful song comes out. And everybody at the time was wondering why, the, and there's no lyrics in the movie, but there are lyrics on the soundtrack album. So everybody was going, why, why, why did the great Curtis Mayfield 
a great songwriter, activist, write about a drug dealer called Fred. Why so much in this song about this drug dealer? And so this is kind of my analysis of that song. And also, it's a bit about what's going on in Missouri right now in the town of Ferguson. Funnily enough, I was with my agent and my friend. We were just having a wonderful lunch in wonderful Glasgow, in wonderful Edinburgh. <laughs> I'm thinking of Glasgow for some reason, because we were talking about it. Edinburgh! And um, I know better than that. And, um, and I said, what am I going to read? And the book fell open to this page. And so this has a lot to do with what's going on in the United States right now, the death of Michael Brown. It's also an explanation of why Curtis Mayfield wrote the lyrics he did for a, we think, drug pusher in a movie called Fred. It really wasn't about that Fred. The day after Dr. King's assassination, the black community exploded in spite of the fact that James Brown had come on TV to beg for calm. And after it was all over, the official count was 39 dead. 34 were black people. Thousands were arrested. Dozens wounded by police gunfire. West Madison Avenue, and I'm talking about Chicago, around where Mama had grown up, was reduced to rubble. A few areas haven't changed from that day. They're still the same. The Chicago police, 10,500 strong, were the most aggressive of all in cities where revolts and uprisings broke out. A few months later, they would be accused of creating a police riot at the Democratic National Convention. After Dr. King's assassination, looters destroyed shops, firefighters streamed in and were shot at, the governor sent in 6,700 National Guard troops. President Lyndon Johnson sent in 5,000 U.S. Army troopers. And Mayor Daley gave a shoot-to-kill order for arsonists and looters. I worried about our cousins and uncles and aunts and probably family we didn't even know who all lived on the west side in the thick of it. The area looked like Berlin right after the Second World War. Burned out buildings and shops and cars were everywhere. I had a job in LaSalle Street downtown. On public transport, I watched how white people looked at us, white women in particular. To this day, I never walked behind a white woman. I walked just a little to the side so that she can see me in her peripheral vision. The police stopped and searched people, as did the Army and the National Guard. Our part of town, the south side, was relatively quiet. The chief gangs, the Blackstone Rangers, etc., kept everything under control, having worked with Dr. King in 1966. The sheer grief in the air, wherever black people lived or were, was numbing, tangible. Churches were packed. He was gone. The community, the people, me, we simply didn't know what to do. The rumor began to spread amongst the powers that be that the Black Panthers and Black Power groups have fomented the riot. It was they who had infiltrated the community. It was they who were the clear and present danger. It was they who were the outsiders. It was the pundits, the talking heads, the police, the mayor, the great and the good, pontificating on talk shows up and down the land. It was they who were the outsiders, the strangers. We were told to be watchful, be careful. 
But the Black Panther Party was us, at least some of us, at least some of the young who decided enough was enough, at least some of me. We didn't want to wind up like our parents and grandparents, cowering in fear, roped in, held down. We wanted it, the whole evil trajectory of it, to end, to stop with us, and we wanted it to end with justice. Following the riot, there was a food shortage, which is how I spent a brief time working with the Black Panthers Breakfast for Children program. There were kids going hungry. These kids had seen soldiers in jeeps low with rifles cruising their streets. Policemen hiding behind cars. Excuse me, everyone, I'm talking about 1968, April. Their rifles pointed up to the building where one of the Panther breakfast children might have lived. I met traumatized little kids, kids unable to sleep, to eat. I was very, very angry. My friend and I, along with others, black and white, helped serve a traditional black breakfast from the Mississippi Delta, food we had grown up eating, grits, ground corn meal served hot with butter and a bit of salt, hot homemade biscuits, properly done with flour and water, kneaded, rolled out with a wooden rolling pin, then cut into biscuit shapes with the lip of a water glass, and of course, good old pork sausages, all washed down with Florida orange juice if there was any to be had. There was no proselytizing, no recruiting. There was nothing anti-white, nothing off the pigs going on. They just sat and ate in a clean, calm, quiet place with other little kids. All we were doing was serving, sitting down and talking, just feeding, and then sending these kids on their way out into the streets to who knew what. This hardened my friend to become a lawyer, to fight the system. Armed soldiers, the Illinois National Guard, the reservists patrolled the streets. But it was the CPD, the Chicago Police Department, with their, with their guns and their shotguns that really frightened us. If a Chicago cop wanted you, you were gone. We knew that as a body, they hated us. Many of them were of Polish and Irish descent, new enemies who were fighting for the same living space, the same jobs, the same life. To many of them, we were simply niggers, subhumans to be contained at best, and if necessary, to be put down like the animals we were. Organizations sprung up that advocated going back to Africa. These were both black and white, so that if you were thinking of immigrating to Africa, you actually were spoiled for choice. The white races offered passage with no settlement costs. The black organizations had no passage, but plenty of clout in the old country. There were African students serving breakfast and listening to the West African ones. When they talked, I thought I could hear that small timbre that sounded like my own voice, the voices of mama and dad. I could hear the link. We hadn't lost everything. We, here across the sea, hadn't lost everything. My friend had to stay in studies or he would have been drafted and sent to Vietnam, but what he wanted to do was become a community organizer, work in the community, anything to be with the people. I loved him because he wanted that, and we talked long and hard about how to do it. But it wasn't possible, it just wasn't. And then in June, Robert Kennedy was gunned down in the kitchen of a hotel where he just made a speech. I can still see the newspaper picture of him sprawled on the floor in the glare of the camera flashes, a busboy touching his neck, the man's face turned in panic to the cameras, Bobby Kennedy's face stunned, as if he were about to object to dying. 
The world waited a day. In the early morning the following day, we got the announcement of yet another Kennedy death. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. He was 42 years old. Thank you. The Democratic National Convention came to town. The CPD, still in the spirit of the mayor's stance on disorder, came down hard on protesters. We stood there arm in arm and chanted back to the phalanx of law enforcement officers lined up the stretch of Michigan Avenue, seemingly to the horizon itself. The whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. Unknown to most of us, the various movements and student organizations have been infiltrated by the FBI's counterintelligence outfit known as COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO was a subject of one of Captain Shamaz's most unintentionally funny rants. Standing outside the university with his ubiquitous pamphlets and scowling face, he yelled like a Chicago 7 Lorola, Liz Taylor, Richard Burton, kiss my ass. You ain't got COINTELPRO to ask. We suspected it might have infiltrated the Black Student Union and it made us wary of one another, uneasy, partly because none of us could understand why anyone would become a spy. The person we all looked up to was Fred Hampton, deputy chair of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. We were contemporaries. Fred was born in August 1948. My friend was born that October, and I was born the following month in November. Where my friend and I and most others like us debated and read and volunteered here and there, Fred organized youth gangs to stop them fighting against one another. But he was like us too in that he wanted to study the law. He wanted to apply the law so that it worked for the poor, the working class, the young, ethnic minorities, all those outside the system. He joined the Panthers and rose through the ranks because I think he believed that it had the correct analysis of things, that black people could no longer turn the other cheek. We couldn't do passive resistances no more. We had to hold the Constitution to its honor, its word for ourselves. When we had our teaching and closed our university down for one day, Fred showed up with a few Panthers to stand outside and make sure we weren't attacked. I don't know. Maybe he heard about our action and showed up out of solidarity. Sometimes he would be at the storefront where we served breakfast for the children, a kind of bear of a man, an athlete. He'd once wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees. He was a quiet, forceful man who affected everyone he met. He was becoming nationally known, and we were proud of that. We didn't know that he was the subject of a massive FBI counterintelligence effort. It was discovered years later that the split in various black youth organizations had been created by COINTELPRO. Fred was on the official agitators list created by the FBI. The FBI sent false letters to the gangs that Fred had successfully brought to the peace table. And in July of 1969, the CPD and the Panthers had a shootout. One Panther was left mortally wounded. On the 3rd of December, after teaching at a local church, Fred and his girlfriend, two weeks from giving birth, went back to the Panther apartment with another Panther to eat and debrief. Fred fell asleep talking to his mother on the telephone. At around 4 a.m., about 14 heavily armed police burst into the apartment and shot Fred, Mark Clark, who was there as Panther security, 
and Fred's partner. Both she and her unborn baby, Fred's son, two weeks from being born, survived. Fred was finished off by a shot to the head by an officer. A certain special agent, Greg York, said, we expected about 20 Panthers to be in that apartment when the police raided the place. Only two of those black niggers were killed. This was the way the 1960s ended for me. In the last month of the decade, those were the words that rang through us, a decade that had been filled with phrases like, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, and I have a dream. When people wondered, therefore, a few years later, how Curtis Mayfield could write such a heartfelt, poignant lament to a junkie named Fred, a movie about a pimp, I think that's because it wasn't for that Fred. Curtis Mayfield was from Chicago, too, steeped in its racial story, its hopes and dreams and sorrows. He was a big recording artist and performer, but he stayed close to his people, to black people and poor people and the oppressed all over the world until his dying day. And he admired and loved Fred Hampton, like the rest of us. That was the Fred Curtis Mayfield was singing about. Thank you. And that, of course, is a chapter with a huge amount of contemporary resonance, uh, Bonnie. You come from Chicago, as does the President of the United States. He's six years into his term, and yet young black unarmed men are still being gunned down in what was supposed to be the post-racial era. What went wrong? Um, Ruth, you know, I think it's a really complicated question. You know, Condoleezza Rice said something that I think sums it up pretty succinctly. She said America has a birth defect. It's racism. Um, and that's just it. Uh, it's, a, it's a racist country. Uh, you would have thought, logically, that this would have been a kind of watershed, except in some ways things went back the other way. A lot of resentment that had been buried or was on the surface came up. Uh, a lot of it was sort of stoked. Uh, I wrote a piece in The Independent about it last week. Uh, a lot of it was stoked by Fox News, um, uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, outfit in the United States. Uh, and they gave and give a place for, you know, the unspeakable and unsayable kind of things. And so it's made this presidency, and by extension the people who voted for this president, illegitimate, alien, strange, bizarre. Um, the other issue is uh, since the end of the, uh, well, the wind down of, of stuff in the Middle East, a lot of kit, just hardcore military kit has come back in the United States. Police forces have bought it. And now the police are appearing in Latino and black communities and also around where young people gather if they think they're out of control. You know, kit it up, I like something out of RoboCop. And it's, it's, it's uh, the increasing militarization of the police. Also, since this president has uh, uh, been in office, there's been an upturn of uh, the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, has been really enforced uh, and, 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 and sort of become a religion in the United States. So that there are even states where there's a thing called open carry. And you can see people going into restaurants with Kalashnikovs on their back, strapped across their back. Um, and, and a lot of this is 
unconscious, subliminal uh, fear of black people, particularly of black males. And this last uh, uh, event, and this, is, this has been a tip of an iceberg or a tipping point for a lot of people. Uh, Trayvon Martin's killing in Florida, a lot of other places. Um, people just have had enough. And this goes back to a generation of people who decided they don't want to live like this. The good part about the bad things that are happening is that, and why I feel close to this generation of kids, is that this is a, an effort by young people as well. I mean, just, you, you've got white kids coming out with the, the poster called Hands Up, Don't Shoot, because this, this young man said this to the police and they gunned him down. You got young white kids coming up saying, you know, I want, I want my friends to have the same privileges that I do. So there's a lot of solidarity among young people, all kinds of people around this. But there's a very strong sense of uh, resentment toward the federal government, black people as recipients of the largesse of the federal government, um, uh, resentment about uh, a lot of different things. And it, it, this is the worst time that I've ever seen in my entire life for in the United States. And uh, I don't know how we're going to get out of this one. I mean, this is bad. The, the thing, I mean, you've lived now um, more or less half your life in, in, in both places. It gives you a very unique perspective. But for people over here, when you have serial campus killing sprees, and most especially in that appalling one in Newton where the, where the children were killed, and then President Obama tries to bring in a modest measure of gun control, just let's not buy machine guns, guys, and it doesn't get passed. And, and that fills most people here with incomprehension. I, I want to say two things about that, because I wanted to understand it myself. First of all, the right to bear arms, um, you have to remember that a lot of the early settlers of the United States were people who came over from after the uh, 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 1688. And a lot of the uh, issue of six, some of this issue of 1688 was the right to bear arms. The king disarmed the people. So people came to the United States with a very strong sense of having arms. Um, and that, in fact, the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, is, and I can't think of the legal term, all the other amendments of the Constitution uh, give you a right. The Second Amendment doesn't give you a right, it states a right, which means that as far as Americans are concerned, God gives you the right to bear arms. Nobody else. So, in fact, the federal government's job is to actually back up God's will. So it's, 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 it's when you talk about disarming people, you're talking about taking on the Almighty. And a lot of people feel that way very deeply. And it, when those little babies were killed in Sandy Hook by that guy with the automatic, five minutes he mowed down a dozen or more kids, I thought, that's it, that's it, that's it. I mean, the president thought, that's it. This is the one. This is the one that's going to disarm people. This is the one everybody's going to say, well, it's enough, it's enough, it's enough. And, of course, it went the opposite because the other part of it for gun advocates is guns don't kill, people do. So it, but, it, but it is a very deep-seated uh, uh, feeling in America that a gun protects you against the tyranny of the king. 
and the king being the federal government. And Americans arm themselves to the teeth uh, to protect themselves from tyranny. And there's also a very strong unconscious feeling in America about home invasion. I mean, every, every culture has a fear. I think in our country, it's about the fear of immigration, the fear of incomers, the fear of being overrun, the fear of being just wiped out, the fear of, you know, and in America, it's home invasion. But what, a, what a ridiculous irony that is, um, you know, fear of immigration in America, which was built on the talent and the energy of immigrants. Americans are, and I was saying here, there's fear of immigrants. I was saying there's, there, there, there are unconscious, visceral fears that nations have. Oh. And I think this one is immigration. Right. It's people coming in. People use words like swamping and all of this. And America, it's about home invasion. Uh, it's about the fact that you have to protect the homestead. The only way you can protect the homestead is with your gun. It's a very deep, deep thing with Americans. And if you want to really make a hit movie in America, make it about somebody in, uh, defending their home. I mean, Home Alone was a comedy, but it was really about the deep thing about a home invasion. And the only thing you can do that is with a gun. You, your gun, and that's how you protect your family and yourself. The whole of the West was settled at the point of a gun. And so I want to say this very strongly because I know people in this country and I know people in Europe and the rest of the world can't understand it. But all I can say is every nation has their thing that is irrational to other people and gun and home invasion and the feeling that the federal government is your enemy is a real deep thing in American consciousness. I could talk about this for a long time, but we really ought to talk about your book. Yeah. Um, and, and the book, uh, irritatingly, only takes us halfway. We don't actually find out what happens to you in Britain, but we will, no doubt, in part two. But the, your family, um, as I say, you were the oldest of, of seven, but your mother and your father worked prodigiously in order to give you security um, in, a, in a basic kind of way, but it didn't sound like a particularly loving environment. There wasn't anything, a lot of hugging and kissing going around. My, uh, you know, the, when people talk about uh, black Americans especially, um, I don't know, some people say being loose or whatever, um, uh, African Americans are very Protestant. Uh, and, and I mean that, I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I, I can say that. But, but, um, uh, <laughs> When I tell you what I mean by Protestant, very kind of, it's very strict, uh, very precise. Uh, there isn't a lot of emotion. Uh, there isn't a lot of sort of physical emotion expressed. The love is there, but it's work, hard work, um, study. Um, you know, uh, I'm not going to give you anything. Uh, you got to work for it. That's how most black people are brought up. It's just hard work, hard graph, hard, you know, education is the thing that's going to save you. Um, and so I was brought up, even though we were baptized Catholic, the ethos is this Protestant feeling of just work ethic, work ethic, work, work, work. And, you know, if you want to get a hug, by a dog, basically. So, you know, that, that you know, so, I, you know, as I got older, I started to see the love, but I wanted to write about it because I'm a very kind of 
Huggy Felix, blah, 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 blah. And dad worked at night in a factory and slept during the day. He just didn't have any time for all I have that. To, I have to say, it sounds like you've got the double up. You know, you've got Calvinism and guilt, you know. Yeah, you know, both. <laughs> both. Your father, who, um, among other fascinating things about him, of course, was part of the DD. Uh, uh, landing and all of that, which gave him a particular perspective about the UK, which maybe you've inherited. But he was uh, famously a patriarch. He didn't, you know, a woman's place was in the home doing what your mother did, which was working all the hours God sent to get him off to work, to raise the kids, to do the washing, to do the cooking, to do... And that was a woman's place. It, that doesn't seem to have rubbed up on you. Well, th this is where I go back to the Protestant ethic thing. My dad said... Um, you know, he was very much a patriarch. You know, girls cooked and da da da, and the boys took the garbage out. They didn't do any work. Um, women, my father said, your education, you get all the education you can. Nothing to do with your gender. You, I want you to go to school. I'm going to send you through school. They can take, his, one of his models was they can take everything from you but what you know. And you hold on to what you know. And he, let's um, pause for he a moment. Didn't, he didn't have very much of an education, but he really believed that education was the most important thing. And if you were a girl, it didn't matter. And he didn't want to hear it. So we worked, and he drilled me when he was at home on Latin and all of that, because he expected me to use my mind. So, you know, when I, when I wound up in situations where, you know, in the 60s, when you, you know, you go into a law school class, and a law professor walks up and says, and believe me, um, those of you who are in the audience, women, you know what I'm saying. Uh, no, okay, Ruth, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> thank you, darling. We're I, not insured for what? No, I'm definitely all right. <laughs> no, I just thought about it. Um, you know, when you walk into a classroom, and they used to do this, and, and some of you sisters in here, you know what I'm saying. You walk into a, uh, a classroom, and a man will stand up in front. You got, you know, you got your credentials and everything. And this guy will say, well, you know, actually, I don't believe women belong in the law. And you sit there. And I know for young women, you think, what? But you know, a lot of you women in this audience know what I'm saying. There were times when people told you in offices, at schools, you know, you didn't belong here in so many words. And my father said, the hell with that. Though there's a paradox here, isn't there? Because on the one hand, he, he likes the kind of traditional man-woman roles in a domestic setting, but on the other, he understands that education is the escape route for everybody. And, and, and that's my ethos as well. I mean, he brought me up to be a teacher. He wanted me to teach. He wanted me to go into the law because it was about um, harnessing the mind, taking the mind as far as the mind could go because the mind will set you free. That's not true, but it was something because he was denied education as a boy growing up in racist Mississippi. And, and Mississippi, my, go down. Yeah, and I mean, he knew what that meant, uh, Nina Simone's song. So my generation were the ones who marched in the streets and, and desegregated the schools so that there could be 
a Barack Obama who could go to Harvard and nobody would go, oh, yeah, and, or a Michelle Obama, uh, or the young people who are, are now in place uh, in America. Um, so education was very important to him, and he didn't have any gender divide there at all. I mean, he couldn't understand anybody who, and this is not uncommon actually um, in the African-American community uh, because education is so important to us, has been denied us, is still denied us in some ways. Those people who can break through and get it, and nobody's got no time for whether you're a man or a woman, you just have to get it. Let's talk a little bit about your mother as well because yes. um, in a way that's, that's where Bonnie arrived because um, your mother and um, um, as she then was Princess Elizabeth, were both pregnant at the same time. Oh, that story, yes. <laughs> Except that one of them wasn't married. Exactly, exactly. My uh, mom met my dad at a dance. They, my mother was uh, a great dancer. She still loves to dance. And they met at a dance, and um, they went out, and, and um, my mother fell pregnant. They decided to get married. You, had, you know, that's what you did in those days. Uh, and uh, and at the time, the the present queen was married, and she was. Uh, I know all this. I'll tell you why I know all this. This may sound very strange. Um, she was at the time, the Princess Elizabeth, Duchess of Edinburgh, and um, there was a you know big excitement about her, and there was a contest and all the hospitals in Chicago. If you give birth the same day she does, you have got a whole year's full of nappies. And my parents, you know, my parents were these young, this young couple. They were living in a shared house. They just had one little room that they lived in. They, you know, I, I, they, they had to, my mother had to cook at the same stove, you know, stove as the rest of the people in the house. It was a communal thing. And my mother was like, wow, okay, so, Luckily, she went into labor at the same time as the present queen. Fortunately, uh, I was born 36 hours after Charles. And so we missed the nappies. <laughs> However, my mother said to me, you will never forget this person. And I said, who? She said, you will always remember his birthday. So whenever his birthday came up, I had to have a little cake with a little candle to celebrate Charles's birthday uh, as a little punishment for me. And, uh, and then one day, I think I was 10 years old, I said, no, I'm not celebrating it anymore. So when I got my OBE from Charles, of all people, <laughs> uh, I told him, um, no, in fact, I met him at a thing at the British Museum, and I said, you know, I was named after you. And I think they had to take Camilla out to get a glass of water. She was laughing <laughs> so hard. So that's her story. And indeed, it doesn't stop there because you've got a, 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 a great, great grandmother called Caledonia. But oh yes, but but um, um, Calad, we'll come back to that. Yes. But um, one of the things in the book which I, I think probably people don't realize who have the, the great uh, facility to go through uh, generations and generations and examine um, their ancestry. You talk about ancestral angst and you, you had a DNA test, but of course, like all people in your situation as a, as a, as a, uh, a black American woman, there's a gap site. There's a gap site yeah. that you can't do anything about because yeah. your history comes to a, a sudden stop because of all the displacement. Yeah, I, I was asked by IBM to do a, a, a DNA um, 
gene test just to see how far back my genetic history was. And I decided to do it on my mother's side because my dad was, was dead by then and, and I wanted to see what happened. And I found out that my genetic history, they could trace it back 80,000 years. And um, it, um, my ancestors, of course, like all of us, began in the Rift Valley in Kenya. Uh, we moved east, my people, and over those 80,000 years toward uh, what's now called Cap Verde. And it's interesting because when I was reading history at university in the 70s, when the Portuguese came on uh, to discover Cap Verde, I put in quotes, they said it was deserted. But of course, my ancestors had been there. And, and in the course of, of, of um, researching this book, I went, uh, I was invited by the British Museum to go to Athens and I saw um, the, one of the old uh, shields of the Medusa, the, the face that they held up uh, to frighten troops, uh, frighten soldiers of Sparta. This was supposed to be the most awful face you could ever see, the one that would stop you in your tracks and make you stop. And I looked at this face, 3,000 years old, and it was an African face with dreadlocks. And of course, they had seen this face in what was called Gor the Gorgons, Cap Verde, that was my ancestors. And then we came back west, and uh, some people, then these are all human beings, then some people went up to the Sahara and then crossed the Sahara, which was green then, and then it diverts, and people went over land to Australia, and, and then people into to Europe and so forth. My direct ancestors kept going uh, toward what's now um, um, Ghana, and then down to the south, and then the trail runs cold because, of course, that's when we were enslaved there. And um, I have to tell you something which I didn't put in the book because that's for another book. I, I was in Ghana um, in the middle of the 90s, and we went up to Kamasi, and I went up with a German, a white guy. We were going up together. I mean, I thought that's my karma. I'm going to, I'm going to slave for it with a white man. I don't know if that's about it. Anyway, <laughs> we, we went up there, and it was very hot, humid day, and he was getting very red, and he was very uncomfortable. And I was, I was walking behind him, because I didn't want to walk with him, and he was getting very uncomfortable, and suddenly it dawned on me, White people didn't do this, it was black people. Because white people couldn't have been up there. This was black people who did this. Black people brought the slaves down to the coast. And then they were traded. And I, I, I remember standing in the compound and that just hit me so hard. I realized the whole link of what this was. And then um, my friend, um, just went out, just name just went out of my head. He, um, his people are, are from that part of Ghana on the coast. And um, he said to me, God, Echo, Echo Ishun. I told Echo, and Echo said, oh yeah, my people were slave traders. And we didn't like it when slavery was abolished. We were very unhappy because that's how we made our money. We brought you guys down and then the Portuguese. And so there's that trauma. We were brought, most people didn't make it across the passage, of course. 
and they threw some of us off in the what's now called the Caribbean, and then my people were thrown off the boat in the South. Um, and there's still, I think, if a psychologist were to examine a whole people, I think she or he might say there's a trauma there that's never ever been healed. I mean, if you are in a situation where in the Caribbean most people, I mean, doing cane, where cane, doing sugar cane was the most brutal work you could do, most people died from it. Jamaica was basically a killing field. It was, a, it was, a, it was Auschwitz, basically. Um, and where I was, my people in Mississippi, after the British took over the high seas and abolished slavery, they did it as a way of controlling the seas. It wasn't because people were altruistic. It was a way of controlling the seas. Um, we, um, we were bred. So it's all of that kind of like trauma that's in people. And it's still there. We haven't had any space or time to deal with and of course, racial segregation in my own lifetime. So there's been no space. I don't want Bonnie to disenfranchise the audience, but there's one last thing I really want to ask you because that kind of, you described it as ancestral angst, but that sort of search for self-definition permeates the whole of your memoir. And quite near the end of it, you say it took you till recently, I think was the word you used, to realize my job is to make, to complete, and to do, what does that mean? Um, I think, I don't know, but I think at, when, I, when I'm thinking about it now, it's to honor the people who came before me. Um, as I'm sitting here, it's also my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, all of these people are here as well. I don't think they could have imagined, certainly, that I would be in a, where I am. Uh, I don't think it wasn't in their purview, but of course they made it possible by deciding to live. And I always say this to young black people when they feel, especially young ones, when they feel down or upset. I say, look, we come from people who decided to live because most people, a lot of people decided not to live, but we just, our ancestors decided to live, to endure. So that's what we have in us. We're survivors, and you need to hold on to that part of yourself and carry on that tradition. So my job is to live, and it's to live uh, as much of myself and of myself as I possibly can, whatever that is, and, and do that because so many of my people were denied their life, which is why this question of independence in this country is deeply profound. And I feel very, um, I'm gonna say which way I'm, I feel, but <laughs> I'm, I feel very proud to be in this country at this moment. Because the people of Scotland have brought forward whatever people decide. Yes, of course, that's the issue. But the other part of it is the people of this country have brought the most profound question that any people can bring forward, the right to self-determination. And 
it's great to be here right now. And it's great that this question is on the table in this country. It's very confusing to Americans and very shocking to Americans. But forget about them. You know, the thing is, this is your question, and it is the biggest question that's been put to this country in hundreds of years. So I'm very proud to be alive at this moment in time. Thank you. And that's the perfect moment to let the audience in. Um, we've got two mics. I think if you'd be kind enough to wait for one of them to come, who's going to start off? Oh, Daddy. Right. There's a, a short arm up there. Thank you. Bonnie, first of all, it's wonderful to see you in, in Edinburgh. Where are you? Because, you know, here. I'm getting right straight to... Okay. I'm up here. <laughs> um, a lot of us in this audience were thrilled by your performance on Question Time. When you unmasked uh, the leader of the British National Party, and indeed you, you shredded that very nasty person. Conversely, are there any, is there anyone you would like to nominate as an individual who could actually improve our world? Who do you most admire as to ability to take us forward? Conversely, if you'd like to nominate someone you'd like to shred and unmask, that would be interesting too. Oh, I got a lot of those people. Um, I'd like to nominate any working person who is teachers, people who work at jobs where you have to work and you're not getting paid enough for your job. Uh, but you work in any way because you believe in what you're doing. Uh, people who uh, make room in their own lives to help other people. And I'm not saying this to be, um, you know, sentimental. These are very hard times and very hard choices. And to me, the dignity of being a teacher, because to me, a teaching is a vocation. It isn't just a job. And my respect for teachers and nurses doctors, people who do services for us, those are people I'd like to nominate as people whose values that are important to me, Thank most you. important. They ain't politicians, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was listening to the news this morning and um, Malalai Joy, uh, the young girl from Afghanistan, was talking about education in the way that you did and talking about how education is so important and she wants everybody, every child to get education. Where are you? But also, um, you mentioned that the fact that your father uh, rightly valued education, but you also hinted that he, you didn't think that education would necessarily change things. And I wonder whether things like what's going on in, in, in Ferguson at the moment and in Scotland at the moment and the issue of democracy is more the question of, of really what will change the world and whether we really do have what we call in the free west, the democratic west, whether we really have democracy and that is really the problem. Um, I, I, uh, and I've, I've only had experience in the schools of England and Wales so I don't know anything about school systems in Scotland. But uh, there certainly is apartheid in England, for sure. Uh, and that's one of the problems. That's a democratic deficit. And it's, it's, it's very dangerous. Um, I don't understand this sort of idea of private you know, schools and public school, all that, that crap, and people, and people not being able to have access to the highest education. Every child born in a country deserves the best education that they can have. That, that's my credo. That's the most important thing. 
Um, and 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 I'm I'm an adherent, and I think Malala is as well, to the Latin root of education, educare, leave, lead out, lead out of the human being. What we all have is our birthright as human beings, each and every one of us, the capacity to learn, the capacity to learn. And we and once we allow human beings to exercise that capacity then I think it leads to peace. I think it leads to democracy. I think that, in, in, you know, we human beings have thrived because we've learned cooperation. We could not survive as a species unless we learned to cooperate. And that's the other side of our warlike little sort of evil negative tendencies. Education encourages cooperation. Cooperation encourages uh, an attitude in which all human beings are allowed to realize who they are and what they are. And that, that is why I'm a, an adherent of education. And, and, the, and, and, and to deny education, to the best education a culture can offer to every child in the culture is to me a, <laughs> a criminal act, frankly. Uh, a so woman, a question from a woman would be welcome. I see you, sir, but I can see you're also not a woman. Um, yes, somebody up there. I will come to you. It's just trying to be gender neutral. I'd like to go back to when you were talking about United States and, and gun, the problem with guns. Is that problem there in the African-American community or is it strictly in the white community? Uh, the gun is, in fact, the person who took uh, the, the state of Illinois to the Supreme Court to challenge the state of Illinois' gun laws, which are very strict, was a black man. And he did it because he felt he couldn't protect himself. He was worried about his home. So he won because the Second Amendment trumps anything that a state can set up about a gun law. So. It is through, it's all the way across the board. My father had six guns in the house. In fact, there was one gun we couldn't even find after he died. He slept with a gun under his pillow, and at New Year's Eve, you could hear all the men in the community out in the back gardens shooting off their guns to greet the New Year. That's how I grew up. Each of my brothers has had a gun to his head. I've seen guns, that's, it's guns Guns are us. That's what the United States of America is. To disarm the United States of America would be to, to dismantle the entire Constitution of the United States. And I don't think that's going to happen. And so it isn't a racial thing. It's all the way across the board. There's a gentleman there and then a lady in the front. Um, could I ask you if you had a moment's unease or doubt about accepting the order of the British Empire from Prince Charles. I did. I did. And uh, the, way, the way I was able to do it was because um, when my dad was in the United States Army uh, at the age of 19, he was in a segregated army. He came over uh, in June, came over in he was stationed here from about April 1944. And you know, D-Day was June 1944. He turned 20 the day after D-Day. 
he always told us when he was when we were growing up that he hit the beach. He wasn't in the landing, but he was in the second wave. He hit the beach, he said, and he put a white pill in his mouth and it gave him a gun because black troops were not armed. The first time he was armed was when he went into combat. And that OBE is for my dad. And he will get it, uh, or my mother, when she passes, is going into her coffin. So any kind of medals they want to give me, it goes to them. That's how I feel. Situation. Sorry for weeping. I didn't even know I was going to do it. Partly because I'm exhausted from this seven hours up on a train. Yes. <laughs> but, do you think the social situation in America, like in Britain, adds to you know poor race relations and things like poor housing and the discrepancy between the rich and the poor, and you know the the, the lack of free um, health care and you know all these kind of things. Thank you. You know, this is, America and, and the United Kingdom are very, very different in terms of how they see the state. And, you know, so in some ways, um, the state in this country, which I think is right, frankly, I don't think the state exists for any other reason except to take, you know, protect you, take care of you, make sure you have a decent life, make sure your kids are educated, your parents have health care and they're all right. That's what I think it's for. Uh, in America it's a different idea about what the state is about. So it's a complicated question. Um, and I, I think maybe, you know, black people in this country may disagree with me and I say this all the time. Uh, in relation to the time that large numbers of people who are non-white have come here, in, in just the time, the last 50 years. This country um, is a success. If you look at the fact that, that Africans, people of African descent have been in the United States, on the soil of the United States, for 500 years. So if you look at that time frame, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that this is a successful experiment, but if you look at it in terms of the time frame, it's much more successful. And, and, um, and it's, that's fascinating to me. Um, I think it comes down to, and I, I say this to Americans all the time, and I feel it, I could be wrong, but at the end of the day, the highest quality in this country, to me, is fairness. I think, I think for, the, for you all, fairness is most important. Now, it doesn't mean that, that things are fair, doesn't mean that people are fair, but fairness, if you put it down to a British person, that's not fair, that gets a reaction. Americans could give a damn about that. <laughs> now, if you are free, that's important for Americans. Oh, freedom, yes, yes, and then they define freedom as they like. But here is fairness, and fairness to me is, is, is about relationship. Freedom is about individuality. And so therefore, to be British, to me, as a person who's born outside of this, is to look at yourself and the person next to you. That's what it means to be British. And however you then make that relation and define it, 
And how you all came to do that with a monarchy is, a, is, is, is incredible to me. It's incredible. It's a great tribute to you as well. Great tribute. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time, but we have been um, really privileged this afternoon here in Edinburgh to witness... <laughs> I listen, listen to, I will to, never do that again. I'm thinking about the rest of my mind. To witness the prime of Miss Bonnie Greer. Join me in thanking Thank her. you. Could I just say, we've, we've only touched on tiny little bits of this book, but it's an, as you can see from the notes, it's an absolutely terrific read. Um, Bonnie will be in the signing tent, which is along to the left. She can chat some more to you. She can sign copies of this, and I recommend it to you most highly. Thank you very much. Thank you, Arthur. <laughs> good woman. You're a good woman. I don't trust people who don't cry. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.